This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So in the talk I gave earlier today, we discussed how Christ is one person with two natures, humanity and divinity. But the natures aren't just there. They have to work together. As St. Thomas says, when Jesus touches a leper and cures him, what makes it possible for Jesus to cure the leper is his divinity. But what makes it possible for Jesus to touch the leper is his humanity. Christ's activity isn't sometimes divine and sometimes human, as if he's got a day job and a night job. Christ's activities are theandric, divino-human. He, a divine person, acts through both his divine and his human nature. In particular, his human nature is an instrumentum divinitatis, an instrument of his divinity. He took on a human nature in order to save us, and therefore his human nature is a means by which he saves us. But as you know by now, there are many ways to be human. We tend to miss this because we assume that the condition of human nature after the fall just is the way human nature has to be, essentially. But that's not right. There are many ways for human nature to exist. There's fallen human nature, but there's also human nature before the fall. And fallen human nature isn't always merely fallen human nature. It's sometimes fallen and redeemed human nature. And redeemed human nature has different versions. Redeemed human nature that's still striving for salvation in this life. And redeemed human nature after death. And redeemed human nature after the final resurrection. So when we say that Christ was fully and truly human, we have left open just what form his human nature took. Another thing we discussed is that a good way to think about this, what form Christ's human nature takes, is by um, thinking about fitness for mission. Christ's mission is to save us for sin, from sin. Christ's mission is to save us from sin. Now, if Christ accomplished this exclusively through his divine nature, with his human nature making no contribution at all, then it wouldn't be right to say that Christ became human for our salvation. If he became human for our salvation, then his humanity has to play some role in our salvation. If his humanity plays no role, then his becoming human wouldn't really have been for our salvation. Now, everyone knows more or less that Jesus saves us through his death. And so some of what I'm saying is uncontroversial and maybe even obvious. As God, Jesus can't die. But if his mission involves dying, then he needs to take on a mortal nature so that dying is possible for him. On the other hand, perhaps it's not so obvious that this involved, so to speak, a divine choice to take on a vulnerable human nature. But it did require a choice. In theory, Christ could have assumed a human nature that was unable to suffer and die. That wouldn't have been suitable for his mission, but it was theoretically possible. The nature that Christ chose was, in terms of physical and emotional vulnerability, then, weak and imperfect. Now let's talk about Christ's human nature from a different point of view, in terms of grace and knowledge. Was his nature weak and imperfect in those respects as well? 
or was it strong and perfect? To avoid certain misunderstandings, let me state explicitly that we are talking about Christ's grace and knowledge insofar as they belong to him as a human being. Christ has divine knowledge on account of his divine nature, but that's not what we're talking about here. Here we are talking about the knowledge he had with his human mind, in accordance with his human nature. As for grace, I don't even think it makes sense to talk about the grace. The, I don't even think it makes sense to talk about the grace Christ has as a divine person. Grace is a gift that God gives to humans, not something that divine persons have as such. So if you're talking about grace, you're already talking about the humanity, I think. To avoid another misunderstanding, theologians sometimes talk about the grace of union, which is the divine gift in virtue of which Christ's human nature is joined to his divine person. That's not what I'm talking about here. I want to talk about the grace possessed by Christ that caused him to be holy. This is called his habitual grace. It's habitual because it's something added to him above and beyond his essence, like a garment, like a habit. It's something that he has. Think of the Latin word habere, to have. But asking whether Christ has habitual grace might sound a bit odd. How can this question even arise? How could Christ not be holy? After all, he's God, and God is holy. Fair enough, but if Christ is really human, then it makes sense to ask whether he's holy not only in virtue of being divine, but also in virtue of being human. Christ is God, and that makes him divinely holy, but is he also holy as a human being? Is he holy in a human way? Is he a saint? It might seem to be the case it might seem to be the case that Christ had no choice but to take on a nature that was perfect in terms of grace and knowledge. Maybe the mere fact that his humanity was joined to his divinity automatically caused his human grace to be maximal, and likewise automatically caused his human knowledge to be maximal. St. Thomas sometimes seems to say that. But instead of getting into that difficult question, I want to focus on the following. Regardless of whether Christ's grace and knowledge had to be maximal, it was best for them to be maximal. It was best because having maximal grace and knowledge enabled Christ to fulfill his salvific mission. Even in his years on earth, before the resurrection, Christ had maximal habitual grace. He was as holy as any human being could be. To be sure, he could feel the tug of passions that might have pulled others away from God, as in the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. But in fact, this tug did not and could not affect his will's firm adherence to the Father's command. Christ felt passions the way we do and yet not the way we do. He felt them, but they never turned his reason aside from the good. This is related to that question that came up last time about his being tempted. Yeah. Also in his earthly life, Christ had maximum human knowledge. This turns out to be a complicated this turns out to be a complicated topic, at least if St. Thomas had things right. St. Thomas distinguishes three ways 
for Christ to have human knowledge. First, even while on earth, Christ has the beatific vision, the vision that the saints will have in heaven. Second, Christ has infused or inspired knowledge, the kind of knowledge that prophets have. And third, he has ordinary acquired knowledge, the kind you get by reflecting on sensation, forming concepts, and so on. This might seem beyond weird. How can Christ know the same thing in multiple ways? But then again, maybe it's not so weird. Think of yourself. You can see things and also hear them without getting confused. You can see things that you can't hear. You can see things and also hear them. Christ's multiple ways of knowing, I think, are analogous to this. It's not as crazy as it sounds. Not only does St. Thomas distinguish three types of human knowledge, he talks about what it means for these types of knowledge to be maximal or perfect. It varies from case to case. By each of these forms of human knowledge, Christ knows as much as can be known. But none of them, even in principle, gives Christ the fullness of divine knowledge. So divine knowledge goes even beyond totally maxed out human knowledge. Now, it's not necessary for us to get into all the details here. Suffice it to say that Christ's human knowledge surpassed by a very long way the knowledge that any other human has ever had. In fact, Christ knew all that a human being could know. All right, then. So Christ had maximal grace and knowledge, but why? To make this clear, I want to consider an objection. The objection says that it's actually offensive and off-putting to credit Christ with maximal grace and knowledge. It's important for us, this is still the objection, it's important for us to be able to identify with Christ. And we can't identify with someone who is so far above us. We need someone who can be in solidarity with us. According to this objection then, if Christ is facing the same difficulties and challenges that we are, and if Christ is God, then in some sense, God is facing the same challenges and difficulties that we are. And therefore, okay, so I don't mean to sound sarcastic and unsympathetic, but it's hard to know how to finish that sentence. Why would it be helpful for me for God to be facing the same difficulties and challenges that I am facing? Now, admittedly, it is sometimes helpful to learn that someone else is facing the same difficulties and challenges that I am. If I'm having trouble getting out of bed in the morning, and I'm ashamed of it, and then I find out that someone else has the same problem, then all of a sudden it doesn't seem quite so shameful. It might even make the problem easier to solve. Once I'm free of the shame, maybe I can just treat this getting out of bed thing as a practical issue, and employ some practical solution, like putting my alarm clock on the other side of the room. This actually works for a while. <laughs> it might help even more if I find out that someone I really look up to has this problem. If St. Thomas had trouble getting out of bed, but I bet you $5 that he didn't. If St. Thomas had trouble getting out of bed, that would be some sort of consolation. So I don't mean to say that it's crazy 
to find consolation in others having the same shortcomings that we do. However, finding consolation is not the same as finding solutions. And this business of having the shame lifted in a way that makes it easier to move ahead only goes so far. If I've fallen off a ship in the middle of the ocean, I'm in serious danger of drowning. It might console me somewhat to learn that you have fallen off the ship too. <laughs> it might even enable me to stop blaming myself for falling off the ship and put my energy more single-mindedly towards the project of not drowning. But the fact is that unless a boat or a helicopter comes along, I'm going to drown. So are you. <laughs> Sympathy and fellow feeling isn't going to change the situation. Perhaps it's better to drown together than to drown alone, but surely the real goal is to avoid drowning. Perhaps you can see where I'm going with this. To paraphrase a remark made by a grad school friend of mine, I don't want Christ to be another guy who's as screwed up as I am. I want him to be someone perfect so he can save me. If the Savior is in the same predicament we are in, he can't save us. He'll need saving too. If he's really going to be able to save us, he'll need to not be in our predicament. He'll need to not be in the water, but on the ship, tossing us a lifeline. What this is meant to bring out is that our relationship with Jesus is radically different from our relationship with anyone else, even with the saints, even with Mary. Mary, according to the church's teaching, is the supreme model and intercessor for us. Apart from Jesus, of course, no one is holier than she, and no one's intercessory prayers are more efficacious, but she's not our Savior. She doesn't impart salvific grace to us. She asks her son to impart salvific grace to us, and it seems right to think of this as a way for her to contribute to our salvation, but she's not doing the actual saving. Only he does that. Jesus is not just a model. It's true that we should practice the imitation of Christ. Nothing wrong with that. But Christ's being, the fact that Christ is worth imitating is not at all at the core of how he saves us. He saves us by bestowing gifts upon us, gifts that make it possible to imitate him. He doesn't just stand there and say, do what I'm doing. He brings it about that we do it. Now, it's easy enough to see how this works when we are thinking of Christ as God. He's God. He's infinite. So he has the power to bring it about that we live and act in a meritorious way. But does Christ have this salvific effect on us in virtue of his humanity as well? St. Thomas thinks that he does. Christ became human in order to save us. This means that his humanity plays a causal role in our salvation, regardless of whether God could have saved us in some other way. The way he did choose to save us was by becoming human and so on. Unless his becoming human was pointless, which is basically a ridiculous thought, his humanity is a means or an instrument. It's important to remember this language of instrumentality. Christ acts to save us by both his divine and his human power, 
But it's not as if they work together side by side as equal collaborators. The divine power is primary and the human power is secondary. The divine power takes the initiative and the human power is its tool or instrument. The human power is real and important, but it's in second place. It's like the ax in the hand of the woodcutter. Both the ax and the woodcutter play a role in the woods getting cut, but what the ax does is subordinated to what the woodcutter does. It is perhaps easiest to see how the bodily side of Christ's humanity plays an instrumental role. Christ saves us by dying for our sins on the cross, and you can't die unless you have a bodily nature. But there's more to it than this. Christ's human soul plays a role as well. In a famous text from the early church, the letter to Diognetus, we find the following claim. God sent Christ as, quote, the holy one to redeem the wicked, the sinless one to redeem sinners, the just one to redeem the unjust, the incorruptible one to redeem the corruptible, the immortal one to redeem mortals. Christ's ability to redeem us depends not just on his ability to die, but on much more. It depends on his holiness, his sinlessness, his justice, and indeed his incorruptibility and immortality. Now, especially because of those last two points, incorruptibility and immortality, it's tempting to think that the passage I just quoted is speaking only of properties that Christ has through his divinity. But I think we can apply at least some of these thoughts to Christ in virtue of his humanity as well. By being holy, sinless, and just as a human being, Christ is able to save us. And maybe somehow we could even add in the incorruptibility and the immortality, inasmuch as Christ's saving work is not only a matter of his dying, but also of his rising to eternal life. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we find the following. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes before me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This passage clearly states that from Christ we receive grace and truth. But does the passage mean that we receive grace and truth through Christ's humanity? I think that the context shows that it does. After all, the passage is about the incarnation and its effects. Commenting on this passage, St. Thomas says this, He, Christ, received all the gifts of the Holy Spirit without measure, according to a perfect fullness. But we, through him, receive some portion of his fullness. 
And this is according to the measure which God grants to each. Then he, then St. Thomas quotes Ephesians 4, 7. Grace has been given to each of us according to the degree to which Christ gives it. St. Thomas is talking about Christ receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit as man. He is saying that we receive grace and truth through Christ, not just on account of Christ's being divine, but also on account of Christ's being human. Christ's human nature is an instrument by which he conveys the Holy Spirit to us. Some of you have met Father Dominic Legg. Okay, so like he talks about this in his book. If you're taking that class, you'll find this out. Yeah. Um, the book is The Trinitarian Christology of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and in that book, uh, Father Dominic also says that St. Thomas emphasized this point a lot more than other theologians at the time he was writing. If Christ gives us grace and truth, grace and knowledge, not only by his divinity, but also by his humanity, then we have a way to understand why he needs habitual grace and human knowledge to a maximal extent. We have a way to understand why he is not just pretty holy and pretty smart, but full of grace and truth. To be the ultimate source for others, he needs first to have it all in himself. Perhaps this will make it a bit harder for us to identify with him. If he is maximally knowing and maximally holy, then he's only kind of sort of like us. But this dissimilarity to us gives him the power to save us. And that's the real point. Earlier, I mentioned the grace of union and Christ's habitual grace. At risk of pedantry, I might as well complete the picture by speaking of Christ's capital grace. The word, the Latin word for head is caput. And Christ's capital grace is the grace he has as head of the church. Because this grace makes us holy rather than making him holy, you might think that it is, in a sense, a different kind of grace. But that's not really how St. Thomas thinks of it. He says it's really just the same grace as Christ's habitual grace, but looked at differently. His habitual grace is so intense that it spills over to the members of the church. It's one thing to say that Christ gives us his life-giving spirit, not only by the power of his divinity, but also instrumentally, of course, by the power of his humanity. It's another thing to say how this works. In what way is saving us a human action on Christ's part? To answer this question, I think it helps to make a few points along the following lines inspired by things that St. Thomas says. First, there are, in a sense, two steps to our getting saved. Christ acts to remove the obstacle to our salvation, namely sin, and also he gets us to accept the salvation that's available once the obstacle is removed. The obstacle of sin is removed, of course, through Christ's passion and death. And it's not merely that by being human, he was able to undergo bodily death, as mentioned earlier. 
It's important that his soul be engaged in a free and generous acceptance of the Father's will. Christ's passion takes away the debt of sin and makes satisfaction before God. But it does this only on condition that he, Christ, embraces it wholeheartedly. If he had died merely accidentally or against his will, then his death would not have been salvific for us. But removing obstacles is not enough. We need to accept God's offer of salvation through faith, hope, and charity so that the possibility of salvation becomes actual in our case. So Christ's human actions are efficacious here as well. First, let's talk about his actions during his time on earth. Christ's life on earth was not like ours, scatterbrained and distracted. He had his eyes on the prize, and that prize was our salvation. Everything he did was aimed at our salvation. He taught so that we might know the truth. He lived together with other humans in a normal way so that they would feel drawn to him. And of course, there's his passion, a work of divine love, but also human love, a work which not only removed the obstacle of sin, but which also inspires us to love him in return, which is where the perfection of our salvation is to be found. Second, let us talk about how his actions on earth and above all his passion get extended to us today. What I'm thinking of is the sacraments. The sacraments are necessary for our salvation. It's not that Christ's passion isn't enough so that we need sacraments as well. It's that the sacraments are how the power of Christ's passion gets applied to us. Now, there's an important question to ask about how this applies in the case of people who, through no fault of their own, have no access to the sacraments in any obvious sense. That's an important question, but I'm just not even talking about that right now. So, sacraments are necessary. They are a way, the main way, you might say, in which the saving activity of Christ, his divine and human saving activity, gets applied to us so that we can receive the benefits of the salvation that he makes available. They are how Christ acts on us so as to give us his life-giving spirit. Okay, so I want to draw this to a conclusion. It's easy to think of Christ as God and Savior in a way that more or less bypasses his humanity. Sure, he's human, but what's important is that he's God so that he can save us. That's a way to think about it, but it's not the best way. Another way to think of it goes like this. Christ is human. That allows him to be our friend and our model. But then you're not thinking of him as the Savior, see? What's harder than either of these is to think of him as being our Savior, both in virtue of his divinity and also in virtue of his humanity. The humanity is second and instrumental, of course, but instruments are important. Now, if it's right to say that Christ's humanity plays a crucial role in our salvation, then we have a good way to respond to the objection I brought up earlier. We have a good way to defend the old-fashioned, kind of hardcore position on Christ's maximal knowledge and grace. 
it's nice to have good responses. But let's not fall into thinking that having good arguments or good responses that we can use to own our opponents is like, you know, the really important thing. So let's push on and realize the significance of all of this for our spiritual life. Jesus is not just a model for us to emulate, like St. Thomas or even the Blessed Virgin. Jesus is the source of what we need. He's a model of perfect knowledge and holiness, and he's the source of what he models. He has it so he can give it. That requires us to receive it. So let's look to him as the giver of the graces we need. Let's ask him for them and thank him for them. All right, so I'm going to conclude with, I have a little handout. I'm going to read some of the handout and then some of the handout I'll let you read for yourself. So the first one is a quotation from the, um, the French saint John Eudes from a book called The Kingdom of Jesus. And I'll read that one. We must strive to follow and fulfill in ourselves the various stages of Christ's plan, as well as his mysteries, and frequently beg him to bring them to completion in us and in the whole church. The Son of God wills to give us a share in his mysteries and somehow to extend them to us. This is brought about first through the graces he has resolved to impart to us, and then through the works he wishes to accomplish in us through these mysteries. He desires to perfect the mystery of his incarnation and birth by forming himself in us and being reborn in our souls through the blessed sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. He fulfills his hidden life in us, hidden with him in God. He intends to perfect the mysteries of his passion, death, and resurrection by causing us to suffer, die, and rise again with him and in him. Finally, he wishes to fulfill in us the state of his glorious and immortal life when he will cause us to live a glorious eternal life with him and in him in heaven. The other text, which I'll let you read for yourself, it's a poem by the English Jesuit Robert Southall. He was um, hanged, drawn, and quartered at the age of 33 um, during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Um, so we're talking about how his human knowledge was perfect, but um, just in my mind right now is that instance in the gospel where Jesus is asked about the end of times, right. and he doesn't know the answer to that, so that... Yeah. He, that hints at a little yes. teaspoon of ignorance. Would that fit under his yes. human knowledge? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, when St. Thomas talks about that passage, he says that sometimes in the Bible, when it says that someone doesn't know something, it means he does know something, he's just not going to tell you. <laughs> and when I read that, I thought, well, that is just the dumbest. <laughs> <laughs> like, of course that's not true, right? And St. Thomas says, as in such and such, I forget, but he gives you a reference to some other place in the Bible. And you know what? It's kind of what's going on in that other Bible passage. <laughs> so I offer this as one admittedly crazy sounding, but possibly quite true answer that um, we're just reading it wrong. Okay, so that's the first thing. 
Now, the second thing that you might want to say is, look, it, well, it depends on whether you want, you can try to, to hold back a little bit on some aspects of Christ's knowledge. Some theologians are trying to think this through, have tried to think this through a little bit. So you could say, for example, that Christ knew it by his beatific vision and he had inspired knowledge of it, but he didn't know it through his acquired knowledge. And so that's what is being talked about there. You could try something like that. Well, I'm not sure, but it's a tough, it's a tough passage. I've heard that he isn't aware of the Father's knowledge of Judas. Oh, so he sort of. But that would mean his divine knowledge is limited. Unless he meant to answer it in terms of his human knowledge, right? Um, yeah, I don't have a really like blockbuster answer to this. It's a it's a it's an important passage um, for understanding the the sense in which Christ. I mean, look, if you're any if you're within a million miles of Orthodox Christology, of course he knows because he's God, right? So it has to only. If it actually does mean that there's some sense in which he doesn't know, it has to be in his human knowledge. And they say, well, if he's got the beatific vision, he must know it that way too. Okay, so maybe, but maybe there's some, maybe his acquired knowledge, maybe he doesn't. Um, well, okay, look, so St. Thomas, early in his career, said that Christ did not learn anything by his acquired knowledge. He kind of like had it all instantly. And then later, he changed his mind and said, actually, he did learn stuff. And even, this is one of the few places where he actually lets you explicitly know, oh, I changed my mind on this. He says, some people hold, and I used to hold, but now what I'm telling you is that he does learn things. Now, that's the little thin edge of the wedge, right? So you get the impression from the, that discussion that although it's true that Christ learned things, he learned them all super, super fast, like <laughs> as an infant or something like that. Um, you could say, well, I just want to push that wedge in a little bit farther, right? So maybe Christ's acquired knowledge took longer and longer to develop. I don't know. I don't mean to, to push on this um, too hard. Um, but that is because that's a tough passage. But I, I, I started with, with the, um, the original superficially crazy sounding answer because I think things like that have to be on the table too. I wonder if you could talk more. You've referred a couple of times to Jesus having the beatific vision of the yeah. knowledge. I wonder if you could talk first more about what that means. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, and also, if yeah. you could talk about it in reference to um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if that left at that moment, or how we can understand. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, specter of von Balthasar <laughs> rising up. Um, <laughs> no? Yeah? Yeah, okay. So beatific vision, I mean, this is a top topic, but basically, this is the immediate, unmediated vision of God that the saints have in the afterlife. So instead of the vision of God being mediated to you through pictures or even really cool philosophical concepts, you sort of have direct, unmediated contact with the divine nature. Okay, so, so this is what you get in heaven, if you're a saint. Um, so the, the, the traditional idea is that Jesus had it all the time, even while he was on earth. Um, now, does, is that enough on that so far? Yeah, okay. 
So now what about, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, so on one level, that's the first verse of the psalm, right? You heard this answer, right? So he just began to pray that psalm, right? Problem gone. Okay, so that's like a way to just like throw that problem out the window. And if you read to the end of the psalm, it ends on a very upbeat note. So you're like, okay, this is not a problem. However, um, you could say, hold on, that's too easy, right? Um, certainly, surely Jesus found it kind of at least a little bit of a downer to be crucified like this, right? Uh, if you, you know, Aquinas has some interesting discussions about the mode of Christ's suffering. He asks whether Christ suffered in every way. He very nerdily says something like this, that Christ suffered in every way according to genus, but not according to species. Because he could not have suffered in every particular species of suffering because some of them are mutually incompatible. So he could not have been burnt by fire and drowned by water at the same time. Like, who was even thinking of that, right? But St. Thomas just wanted to mention that. Okay. So, uh, no, I love that. So, uh, but it's kind of, okay. But then he says, actually, though, in other words, he suffers in every way possible. He suffered in his body. He suffered in his, his emotions. He suffered the loss of his friends, all that stuff. Now, okay. I wouldn't want to say that Christ um, lost the beatific vision or was it? That sounds wrong to me. Now, but could you sort of go out on a limb and say maybe sort of in his acquired knowledge? I don't know. I wouldn't say that. And the reason I wouldn't say that is because it would be, so to speak, Christ succumbing to temptation. So I wouldn't say that. Um, but if you wanted to say something like that, you'd have to restrict it to that. But see, I think this is different from um, the case of not knowing the date of the second coming, because that is something that you could not know, but not as a result of any sort of blameworthy, uh, you know, of the passions taking over. Whereas if Jesus, full of habitual grace, even in his acquired knowledge, thought, wow, like, this is over. I've, like, <laughs> backed the wrong horse. You know, I think that would have been Jesus succumbing to temptation and sinning, and that just sounds impossible. So, does that help? Yeah, yeah. I just wondered, I guess I thought not so much that Jesus would have succumbed to temptation. I mean, right. of course not. But I was thinking more, if he has some kind of unmediated vision, if, through no fault of his own, that vision was, like, lessened in that moment. yeah. I don't see that. You were using the analogy of uh, drowning and the question of is Jesus in the water yeah. or on the ship? And um, I mean, I, I, I appreciate the lifeline from, but I wonder if if I am in such a poor condition as to not be able to catch the lifeline. Maybe I do need Jesus in the water to tie it around. Yeah, good. Yeah, as, as I was reading, I thought. Man, what's the whole, this whole thing is about the incarnation and I'm not having him get out of the ship. So like, I thought this is my metaphor screwed up here. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So first of all, it's a metaphor, right? So you just can't push, you can only push him so far. Um, and that's just the way it goes. And it's like, you can cause, I'm not blaming you, but I'm just saying like, you can make huge errors in theology by trying to go all the way with metaphors or like take somebody else's metaphor and say, aha, Aha, uh -huh, you see? I like that's, you know, that's okay. 
But that wasn't what, I'm not accusing you of doing that. I'm just making this as a general point. Okay, so. Um, I think, no, I mean, I think you're, you're completely right that, um, and it's actually a super important part of Christian teaching on justification. Right. Yeah. So God doesn't just throw us a lifeline and say, it's up to you now, right? God moves us to freely choose it. And that leads like really into dark kind of scary mysteries. But you do have to affirm this for sure. Yeah. So that's a huge uh, um if you were, you know, if, if you wanted to give a presentation on salvation, you wouldn't just say, well, God throws us a rope. Like, that would be a mistake. Because it's not enough. He has to be, like, there to, like, grab our hand and, and cause us to freely grab the rope. Yeah, he has to cause us to freely grab the rope. I mean, that's the answer, whatever it means. I, I, I think that's an important point, too, that it is still us that has to, has to grab the rope. Absolutely. And I, I wonder if there are, I mean, maybe staying in the metaphors more, but I tend to do that. Um, I'm not sure if it's the theologians that say it, but I think that there are uh, forms of Protestantism which would, I mentioned Calvinism like this, I'm not sure if Calvinists would say so, but they would say that it is Jesus tying rope around you, that kind of thing. Well... You mean without your freely cooperating? Ah, I see. Um, no doubt. Yeah, but the the um, if you read Saint Thomas, you'll wonder what's the difference between him and Calvin, actually. Um, and Calvinists wonder this too. Okay? <laughs> the positions are very close. The distinctions turn out to be like really very very fine. If that weirds you out, let me just say this. Um, read the Council of Trent on justification. It says a lot less than St. Thomas said. Now, whether or not it was like literally true, or just kind of a legend that when they had the Council of Trent, they had a copy of the Summa Theologiae up on the altar. <laughs> whether that's like literally true or not, um, I mean, there's no reason to doubt that they were greatly influenced by St. Thomas, but they were, they kept their own counsel. And so they often, they leave things open. They leave, they leave questions open that he answered. So the fact is, if you read St. Thomas on justification, you're like, whoa, I don't know if I can go that far. The church doesn't ask you to. Trent makes it clear that God has to take the first initiative and give us the grace to be saved, and we can't do it on ourselves. It also makes it clear that we have to accept it freely, and it just doesn't, Go like it doesn't settle that for you. Um, like if it's if if you're like, wait, how does that fit together? It's not clear. This is like one of the big classic things that theology argues about, of course. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I fully understood your response to her earlier question of like whether Jesus Lord can be tempted. Would you mind? Mm. Sorry. Yeah. So the Bible says that Jesus is tempted, right? Um, now, the question is, what does, what does that mean? The, the temptation stories of Jesus going, you know, being led up on the tower and all that, those 
Um, there are ways to handle those that don't even get near the question that we're all really interested in. Um, because what that might simply mean is that Jesus was being tested. The devil was trying to figure stuff out about him. So he puts Jesus into these situations to see what happens and then learns important things like, uh-oh, this might actually be God, right? So it may be that, that thinking of those as temptation scenes in our sense is just completely wrong. But in, it's in Hebrews, I guess, right? Anyway, somewhere in Hebrews it said that, that, that Christ was tempted in every way that we are. Okay, so that one I think is not so easy to to um, handle in the way that I just mentioned. Um, so I think the way to, to go with this, and I think this is what um, Aquinas says, is that Christ felt passions, but his passions did not interfere with his reason. And so um, there was like never any chance that he was so so if you want to say that feeling those feelings is what you mean by a temptation, then he was tempted. But there was never any chance that he was going to give in to them because his reason was completely in control. We're just talking about his human nature. Yeah, right? So his reason was totally in control. And so there was no chance. Um, now somebody might say, well, then you weren't really tempted. Well, it depends on what you mean by tempted, you see. So, um, I mean, I'm thinking, I mean, like, try to think of this in real life, like, in our own lives is what I mean. So, so you're at a party, right, like a little kid's birthday party, and you're, like, sitting next to the cake, and you're really hungry, and you're like, whoa, you know, and you feel your hand just, like, reaching out, and you have to grab your hand and pull it back, you know. Okay, so you were, like, definitely being tempted, right, because you're acting in a kind of shameful way here, you know groping after a child. Okay, that's pretty bad. Now, but, and then, so imagine a scenario different time, and I think this is like something that, like not that far-fetched sounding. You're sitting there and you're like, wow, that cake looks awesome and I am really hungry. But, duh, it's a kid's birthday party, it's only gonna be I have to wait a few more minutes, I've got this under control. So there's no chance you're gonna give in. And yet you do feel the tug of the cake, right? So maybe um, you could say that Jesus felt normal passions in that way. Um, you know, like, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, you know, who wants to be whipped and crucified and died, right? In one way, he doesn't want to, right? His, his, his bodily passions are like, that's not going to be fun. Um, but there's no worry here. So, so you know, I'm trying to describe this in such a way that once you see, once we see what the issues are, then whether, whether we call it a temptation or not is not, it's just a matter of how you want to define temptation. If in order for it to be a temptation, there has to be a real chance that you'll fall, then Christ wasn't tempted. But if it just means he felt the tug of those same emotions, but unlike us, there was no chance that he was going to fall, then yeah, he could have been tempted. So why do you think St. Paul, because the verse doesn't have like Hebrews 4, yeah. 15, so why do you think St. Paul, like, earlier in that statement, he was like, we have a high priest who is... We don't have a high who's unable to uh, empathize with our weakness. So do you think he's saying that in reference to, like, like why do you think he would put that there? If well, yeah, I mean, because Jesus did feel the same feelings that we felt. 
So if we were to say to him, do you know what that's like? He could say, yeah, actually I do. I don't know. I mean, I sort of feel like, I, I, I mean, if I wanted to press your point for you, I know how I would do it. Do you want to press it yourself? No, or? no, you do it. Well, I mean, I mean, you could say, look, you know, um, how about let's just switch gears a little bit and say, look, suppose you went to Jesus and you said, you know, like when you're totally confused and you just have no idea what's going on, you know what that's like? He's not going to say, yeah, sure, totally I know what that's like, right? Because he doesn't, really. I mean, you could say he knows it sort of from the outside because he's God, and of course, he created your confusion. So. But he's not, like, gone through. I think that's true. So um, so we have to terrain that passage of St. Paul's in a little bit. If you interpret, if you just let it run away with the show, then you have to give up on Christ being full of grace. Um, so I'm trying to find a way to give it a lot of force, but to also allow that Christ is completely sinless and full of grace. So, um, you know, it's not like you could say to Jesus, you know how wait, you feel, you know what it's like when you commit a mortal sin? He's going to go like, yeah, I know, I hate that. But no, <laughs> right? So, I mean, in a sense, he can't sympathize with that, right? He can't even sympathize with a teeny tiny venial sin, right? Okay. But on the other hand, um, that passage from Hebrews 4 has to mean something. So here's what I'm thinking maybe it is, that he felt the tug of passions that we did. But unlike us most of the time, but not every time, unlike us most of the time, um, well, I've got my sentence all mixed up. Anyway, most of the time, there's at least some chance that we're going to give in. But for, her, for him, that wasn't the case. All right, that's all I got. This is one of these tough, tough cases. Uh, I think I've heard a little bit of commentary about this, but can you tap into when St. Paul's talking about, like, Jesus became sin? Um, oh, yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to think about, I don't have, like, a detailed answer, but those are passages, I think, that are about Christ's um, pain, meritoriously paying the punishment word you for, you know. So he doesn't actually like become personally sinful, but he takes the punishment or pays the debt is maybe a different, more helpful way to think about it. He pays the debt. I mean, see Anselm's idea is something like this, and Aquinas likes this, that because, this came up before and last night, yeah, because um, there's been this infinite offense, right, a bad offense against an infinite being God, like an infinite debt has to be paid, an infinite deed has to be done, and it has to be done by a human being. This is a big problem because human beings can't do infinite things. But if you have a human being who's also God, then you can get around, right? So this is Anselm's idea. So, um, but like, why should Christ have to do this? Well, because we have to. So he does it, and then he takes the benefit of it salvation and, and says, I'll pay their debt instead. You know, it's like he took an extra job, earned all this money, and then used it to pay off our debts, something like that. So I think that Christ becoming sin, is that it's in that area. Um, and not, it's not talking about any way in which he's not like losing grace or something like that. It's not, it's nothing like that. 
All these perilous questions. <laughs> Very random question. Um, but why did he have to die in his 30s? Why couldn't he have lived longer or something? Um, Is there I, any, I, I mean, bet you a dollar St. Thomas asks why. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. that offhand? Um, no, I can just conjecture about what I think you would say, Father Andrew Kierman. I think something about how it wouldn't be fitting for him to decline. Ah, that's so, a good one. So in terms of the age of perfection, yeah, yeah. he was a, a particular I think I think Aristotle says that the like peak. I think Aristotle says that the peak age is thirty five, and Aquinas says, well, it's actually thirty three. <laughs> so, uh, no, I'm serious. I mean, I do think it's like, you know, when you're 33, no, sorry, did you want to? No, I'm just, I'm 33 right now. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, I mean, you can tell us. I think when you're 33, oh, yeah. you're, not, you're not really going down the tubes yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're not, I mean, I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's actually tricky, right? Like some of you, some of you are already old enough that you've already started to realize that you can't pull all-nighters the way you used to. You know what I mean? It sets it in fact. Um, but anyway, well, you know, when you're in your early 30s, you're still pretty, you're still doing pretty well physically, right? And yet you've gained, had a decent amount. You're kind of, it really hitting your stride. So this is so Jesus is really doing really well, humanly speaking. And so that's what he gives up. He gives it up. You know, if you like sacrifice your life when you're 95 and you're almost dead anyway, I mean it's nice, but like it's not the same. It's not the same. Um, I heard the, um, what did they say about um about Ignatius? He gave his youth to Christ. And I heard uh, a guy who was a not super late vocation, but a moderately late vocation say. Yeah, I gave my early middle age to Christ. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's better, you know, to give it up at the prime of life, I guess. I, mean, I bet you that's part of it. So. But he probably has three reasons. He almost always does. <laughs> so we got two. Well, the third, come on, Mark. <laughs> there you go. Okay. 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 Ok